What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Renewable Energy Smart Pod. I'm your host, Sean McMahon, and my guest today is Michael Rucker, the founder and CEO of Scout Clean Energy. Michael has been in the renewables industry for a long time, so we're going to chat about what has changed over the years, what has remained the same, and how Michael sees the industry evolving in the years to come. Stay tuned for the pod brief segment towards the end of today's show, where I'll discuss some reports and studies that have been released recently that paint an interesting picture about the growth the wind and solar industries will have to exhibit to maximize the potential those two sectors have to help power the energy transition. And remember, if you're looking to stay informed about all things renewable energy, head on over to smartbrief.com and sign up for our daily newsletter, the Renewable Energy Smart Brief. Before we kick off my conversation with Michael Rucker from Scout Clean Energy, I want to say a quick thank you to the exclusive sponsor of today's episode, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. Mitsubishi Heavy Industries is committed to realizing a carbon-neutral future through its new equity interest in the Brighter Future Solar Farm. MHI continues to identify investment opportunities in carbon reduction projects to accelerate its energy transition activities. MHI, move the world forward. Thank you, everyone, for joining me today. My guest is Michael Rucker, the founder and CEO of Scout Clean Energy. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you, Sean. It's really a pleasure to be with you. It's great to have you. I see out the window there. It looks like a nice day in Boulder, Colorado, where you guys are headquartered. Uh, what's life like in the Rockies these days? Well, we're, we're known for sunny weather, and it's not letting us down. A little bit on the hot side, but I think the biggest issue we've had this summer is smoke from California, from the huge fires that we've seen on the West Coast, which is disappointing, but also in a sense inspiring too, because what we do here, we're, we're trying to address climate change, which is one of the big drivers of the wildfires ultimately. Yeah, we've had a, a little bit of that. I'm up in Portland, Oregon, and we've had a little bit of that this summer, uh, a lot worse last summer, but uh, you're right. It's something we're all trying to kind of tackle in our own way through the work we do. So let me start off by just kind of asking you to tell me a little bit about your background in the industry, You know how you got started in renewables, and then tell me a little bit about the origins of Scout Clean Energy. Yeah, I got started in the renewables business uh, right when it really commercialized on a large scale in the United States. So uh, when GE Wind Energy entered the business. Prior to that, I actually had worked for nonprofits initially, and then um, after graduate school, became an economist and worked at the International Energy Agency. So I, I followed the climate change negotiations from the Kyoto Protocol through the first five years of the COP. Academically interesting, and of course, I'm really motivated by the challenges of addressing climate change, but it just wasn't hands-on enough for me. I wanted to uh, you know, actually build things, get iron into the ground, as they say. So eventually that led me to switch over to the private sector. Uh, I started out really working in power marketing trading, renewable energy certificate trading, and then was lucky enough to come to GE right after the acquisition of Enron Wind. Worked at General Electric for a number of years. At that time, it was mostly wind power, but also natural gas and hydro sales. And then I uh, got a call back to go to the former team that um, had put together Zon, the predecessor of GE, and I uh, became a developer at Clipper Wind Power. And I've been in development ever since. Now I'm in Boulder, Colorado, and uh, started two companies here, which uh, Scout is one of them. Scout was a uh, spinoff from an operations maintenance company called Harvest Energy Services that I initially founded in 2014. Was able to bring our team together and formed Scout. You know, Scout's grown quite a bit since its founding in 2016. It kind of parallels the uh, long-term extension of the production tax credit for wind. We started out really focused 
as a wind company, which was my background. Since then, uh, we've grown to be about $1.2 billion in market capitalization. Uh, we have about 1,200 megawatts of projects in operation. We're an owner-operator. Uh, that's all wind at this point. We have about five gigawatts of total development in, in 14 different states. That's wind, solar, and a few storage projects. So we've diversified quite a bit. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about the project footprint you have at Scout. Where are some of your projects located with the big ones and, and the stuff that's coming down the pipeline? Yeah, we have op- operating projects in a number of states. In Texas, Oklahoma, we have Indiana as well for wind. We have wind in uh, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, California. Uh, development projects basically in all those regions and add in a few states uh, in the Midwest and in the Pacific Northwest where we're uh, reaching out basically to diversify in as many markets as we can participate in. We're in every major power market at this state other than New England and New York. Wow. Okay. Sounds like you're, you're everywhere. And it also sounds like you've been in the industry for quite a while. So what are some of the biggest trends that, that you're seeing right now that are shaping the renewables, you know, the energy transition, you know, both from a positive and maybe any headwinds you're noticing? On the positive side, really what we've seen is uh, decades of improvements in efficiency of the technologies we use. You know, solar PV costs have dropped uh, about 90% in the last decade, wind about 70%. Um, the delivered cost of energy from both of these technologies are really the most competitive on the grid. For the first time last year, we we really saw renewables consistently below the long-term cost of energy for coal, which is a significant milestone. Also, we've seen a rise in storage technology, and we'll only see that continue as we try to integrate more of these renewables into the grid. Um, On the market side, corporate interest has been a major trend. Um, A lot of our marketing efforts are really targeted towards corporates these days, when traditionally, when I started in the industry, it was primarily all a utility market. So those are the positives that are really driving a lot of growth. Negatives, we're seeing oversubscribed transmission queues throughout the United States. So the grid is basically just bloated with interconnection requests. I understand there are about 750 gigawatts of projects seeking to interconnect at some place um, on our grid. And what we're seeing are long queues, very expensive cost allocations for interconnections, and really the threat of slowing down the growth that we've seen in renewable deployment, unless it's addressed. So what are some of the solutions you're hoping to see to kind of clear out that interconnection queue? Well, I'm I'm pretty excited about um, a few of the policy initiatives that we're seeing coming up. Maybe the most significant one is the uh, infrastructure package, which the bipartisan one, which should pass later this year. That has about $73 billion in federal funds targeted for investment in the transmission grid. And that's significant, but you know, the truth is we've had no lack of capital in the industry that would be excited to invest in a transmission project. It's really about transmission planning and cost allocation. And part of that bill is actually creating what's going to be called a grid deployment office in DOE, which isn't heavily well-defined right now, but you know, could evolve into something that would help us permit and site transmission across the United States and also integrate that long-term planning into the planning process between the various independent system operators in the U.S., which notoriously aren't very good at planning across the seams, across their borders. So that, that's a big positive. And also FERC itself um, is working on a new uh, rulemaking that is promising to just overhaul the transmission 
planning and a cost allocation process. It's called an ANOPER, which is a very, very wonky term, but it's basically the process of getting a rule in place that would uh, hopefully accelerate that in the United States. That should be a very significant one. That sounds good. Sounds like some good ideas. Now, so we're about you know 18 months or so into the pandemic. And I mean, you know, as well as I do, that when this thing first hit, there was a lot of trepidation within the re- renewables industry of where projects going to get built, you know, what kind of supply chain hit were we going to take? So what have you learned from that? What have you seen in the last 18 months? You know, anything both operationally at Scout or industry-wide that there were kind of some of the lessons you've learned? Yeah, I, you know, the pandemic unfolded almost the opposite of what I was expecting when I was sitting at this desk in uh, 2019. What we really saw uh, ultimately were construction projects. We had two major ones going on. I anticipated that those would just come to a dead stop, um, that we would have infections, quarantines, supply chain issues. What actually unfolded is the construction projects actually were relatively close to being on time. We had a few supply chain disruptions at the beginning, but once all the equipment was developed, people in that outdoor environment were able to pursue construction of two major wind projects without a major hiccup. What did surprise me, though, is that development work, which is a very much kind of upfront and personal business, uh, you have to get landowners on board with making the commitment for leases for uh, energy installations. You have to be dealing with permitting authorities, local stakeholders. Uh, That was disrupted more significantly than I thought. Uh, it took a while for these processes to kind of move over to Zoom and Google. And uh, it was very difficult to kind of sit at the kitchen table with landowners in the height of the pandemic and uh, have a comfortable conversation about um, participating in one of our projects. So that slowed down quite a bit. Industry-wide, um, we definitely saw demand destruction, which is basically reduction in energy demand as a lot of our manufacturing, heavy load use, and even office use of energy declined over that period. So that led to declining pricing for operating projects. But I think we're right now seeing that come back pretty quickly along with the economy. Speaking of the supply chain, so what are your thoughts on some of the issues that have arisen when it comes to solar? Talk about the tariffs and stuff coming out of China. It's a hot topic right now. And obviously, you're you're standing up a lot of solar all over the country. So what's your viewpoint on that and, and how you hope it shakes out? Solar, uh, some of the trends we've seen, obviously, are are tariffs and uh, countervailing duties, really. These are policy measures that the government's been taking to try to encourage uh, manufacturing in the United States. And I I can't say it's been a terribly successful policy over time. I think we've adapted to it. But we have to realize that most of the employment, particularly in solar, is really in installation. Um, It's not the commodity panels that we use to build the projects. It's really about the people who plan, build, construct the projects and operate them ultimately. Um, Nonetheless, uh, you know, we follow it carefully and we have to abide by those rules. You know, some of the tariffs that we thought may have been relaxed seem to be continuing, particularly the 201 tariff, which I think applies to modules from all over the world. The uh, 232 tariff applies to steel that's affecting wind as well as solar. And then you have the anti-dumping countervailing duties, which look like they might be expanding, actually, just in the last few days. Um, we've seen that uh, potentially start to move to uh, encompass Southeast Asia as well. And that's trying to catch what are suspected to be Chinese companies, which are trying to uh, basically launder panels through those countries. You know, it's just something we have to live with. I might not agree with it as a policy. What I can say is it definitely adds to costs for U.S. consumers 
tariffs are effectively a, ca- a, a tax on consumers in the U.S. It doesn't really fall on the importers. So we're effectively making our solar industry less competitive at the expense probably of you know, local employment in the U.S. in the big picture. But that being said, I'm still a big proponent of U.S. manufacturing, and I hope we can have a strong manufacturing sector. We just have to figure out where's the best value add. What do we what do we build here versus what we buy in, in you know international markets? Yeah, I guess kind of bringing some of that manufacturing home is what the you know the jobs, jobs, jobs is all about, right? So it's an important piece to get figured out. I'd like to pivot for a second and just hear more about a couple of specific projects that you and the team at Scout Clean Energy have been putting together. Listeners won't know this, but the reason you and I first got in contact was because uh, the project by the name of Horse Heaven in Washington State. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, Horse Heaven is uh, one of my favorite developments. It is a thousand megawatt wind solar storage hybrid project. So it incorporates all of the principal renewable and storage technologies in one project. And by doing that, you can uh, provide a very consistent delivery and shape of delivered energy to an ultimate customer that utilizes transmission more effectively. It covers utilities uh, load throughout more hours of the day. It's basically a better fit for uh, everybody if we can get closer to around the clock energy production at one of our facilities. This one is, is large scale, obviously, at 1,000 megawatts, but it really seems to fit what the needs are for the region. Uh, Washington State, where it's located, has a 100% clean energy standard that it's trying to meet over the years, so it's going to be heavily focused on renewables. This is one of the largest projects, really, in the region that can help to um, you know, supply that demand. And uh, we're really proud that uh, Horse 7 could be delivered in the next few years. And I hope that we can find utilities to participate in the project so we can get it financed and uh, built. Looking forward to it. One other project I wanted to ask you about, Sun Chief Solar and Bitter Ridge Wind in Indiana. Now, did those start out as a hybrid project or how did that evolve? You know, we actually started Bitter Ridge as a wind farm uh, back in 2016. It's an area where I've been working uh, years ago. And uh, the first time I, I looked at the Bitter Ridge locations, um, the technology just wasn't there for wind. It wasn't efficient enough. But over time, um, that changed and we were able to uh, get a project uh, developed, financed and constructed that went into commercial operation in 2020, um, the Bitter Ridge Wind Farm. It's in Jay County, Indiana. We've since come and uh, began a development work to integrate a solar project with the wind farm. And this one's unique in our portfolio, at least. The solar farm itself, the panels and modules are going to uh, share the same footprint roughly as uh, the wind farm. So from a technology perspective, it's, it's truly a hybrid project generating uh, wind power, you know, more weighted towards uh, the shoulder in evening and night hours and solar power during the peak of the day. We'll be right back. Mitsubishi Heavy Industries is building an innovative solutions ecosystem to realize a carbon-neutral future through investment in renewable projects. Recently, MHI announced a joint partnership with Osaka Gas USA to purchase the equity interest in the Brighter Future Solar Farm from project developer Oridin. The project will provide a local generation source and allow Blue Ridge Energy to work towards its goal of a low-cost, low-carbon future. MHI aims to help Blue Ridge Energy achieve 50% reduction in carbon emissions from 2005 levels in the next decade, and to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050. MHI, move the world forward. 
And now back to my conversation with Michael Rucker, the founder and CEO of Scout Clean Energy. And when we were talking about the pandemic earlier, you mentioned that one of the things that was difficult was in the early development phase, you know, getting landowners to sign on for leases and things like that. So what are some of the things that your team or what are some of the tactics I should say your team utilizes to do that? Again, when we first got in contact about Horse Heaven, that was kind of the story I was reading was that the unique strategy your team used to to engage local stakeholders. So what approaches do you take? Well, to start with landowners, uh, generally landowners uh, in most of the country are very open to to wind and solar energy. Uh, Wind in particular is a very compatible use with the traditional land use that they've had on the sites over the years. So that could be ranching or farming. Uh, We use a very, very small footprint of the uh, land that's uh, you know dedicated to the wind farm actually, and the rest can just kind of go on as it was before. So, landowners really appreciate the uh, revenues from that over time. Stakeholders, likewise, in the community, in many places where we arrive, we become one of the largest taxpayers in a county initially from when we install the plant, and that money flows down, you know, typically to schools, to counties, to hospitals, which creates you know a higher standard of living potentially in the places where uh, wind energy and solar energy has been deployed. So stakeholder relations become most difficult when we get into the permitting process. And ultimately, you know, we do see opposition projects, uh, wind more than solar typically. And uh, we try to address that by really pointing to these positive aspects that I'm describing, um, but also just trying to uh, get in front of it and communicate with the communities so that, People understand our plans, understand the benefits, the local benefits for the project, and and really try to have a conversation around the facts as opposed to the hype. And we try to keep that as nonpartisan as we can, definitely. Although you know we have a polarized society, and you know that can create um, automatic opposition just due to political beliefs. But once you drill it down to the facts. I think we usually get the majority of folks in these communities supporting the projects. And certainly once they're built, they very quickly fit into the landscape and into the local economy. So let me pull on that thread a little bit about politics and things like that. So obviously there are some areas where you probably get a more welcome reception than others. So what are some of the things that can be done at the local, state, or federal level, for that matter, to help smooth out some of the the process of getting new renewables projects up and running? Well, we try to communicate early and often. We try to focus on the positives. Uh, we address in a factual manner the challenges, the the, the negatives. Uh, we spend a lot of time on environmental and wind avian issues. We spend a lot on visual impact and sighting as well. Uh, just really make sure that members of the community know exactly what we're proposing, know the benefits for the community, and, and also identify and uh, respond to the issues that opponents bring up. And, you know, typically those are what you call NIMBY issues, you know, not in my backyard. And, uh, you know, most of that can be addressed just with facts, frankly. And then on the federal level, so a lot of the proposals we're seeing around Capitol Hill right now having to do with tax credits. So obviously that's a key component of developing projects like the ones that Scout gets up and running. Where do you see all that headed? Well, we had... um, uh, 
little bit of help recently, I think June, the early summer, they revised uh, what are called the safe harbor guidelines for uh, renewable energy uh, projects. It gave us basically an extra two years to get major projects in the ground, uh, addressing the delays that we saw during COVID. So that was very helpful. But really, the big change could come with the upcoming human infrastructure bill, which is often called also the reconciliation bill. Um, if that were to pass, it, were to extend, it would potentially extend the tax credits for wind and solar by about 10 years in a phase down. And this is specifically to address climate change. I'm not a big fan of tax credits, I'll say right now. Um, particularly the production tax credit in wind um, has a distorting effect on power markets. Uh, it drives pricing very low, but it can even drive pricing negative in a lot of hours, which obviously makes it difficult for us as an operator to uh, generate cash flows to keep projects operating. Um, that wouldn't be how power markets would naturally evolve without the tax credit. So maybe not the most efficient and best policy measure, but it's the one that we're familiar with and it's the one that Congress can get done. So given the gravity of the issues associated with the climate challenge, uh, we'll take it. And uh, we'd like to see the bill go forward. And if its goal is to roughly double the pace of installations of renewables in the next decade, I think it has a good chance of, of doing that ultimately. Okay, well, let me pick your brain a little bit on that then. In a perfect world, you know, let's just pretend that everything was smooth sailing on Capitol Hill and, and the best idea is always won out. What would you prefer over, over tax credits as a, as a mechanism to kind of spur the growth of renewables? I, I'm more of a fan to the extent you can be a fan of such a thing. Uh, I, I'm more of a fan of a carbon tax, basically, of monetizing the price of carbon, which would be technology neutral and uh, also create a durable incentive uh, that's market-based over time. So it would build efficiency into that equation. And the most efficient technologies would be deployed uh, in most instances. And um, as technologies ebb and flow, We'll have new entrants, more efficient technologies applied, and the carbon tax would also encompass things like renewable, not only renewable energy, but energy efficiency, which I think is a very important and maybe the lowest cost option we have to, to reduce emissions in the short term. So I'm, I'm more focused on a carbon tax from a purely economic perspective, but there are a lot of challenges in instituting that nationwide. Yeah, for sure. Like I said, in a perfect world, we can maybe get there. One thing I'd add is the... Uh, Reconciliation Human Interest Bill does have the potential of bringing a clean energy standard into effect across the United States. And this isn't really a new concept. We have 32 states that actually have what we call uh, renewable portfolio standards, which we're just focused on renewable energy. Um, we have eight states that already have 100% like zero carbon reduction goals in the form of clean energy standards. So eight states have already kind of taken that leap. There are about 13 others that have 100% zero carbon goals, not necessarily enforceable standards, but they're definitely trending that direction. And there are about six more that are considering it. So by if this were able to uh, come about through the reconciliation bill, you know, we have potential of very quickly on the demand side, starting to uh, build demand in areas of the country where we haven't necessarily seen strong incentives for utilities and retail buyers to to invest in renewable purchases. So that would be a big positive. And that I think is really ultimately a more efficient policy measure than tax credits ultimately as well. 
Yeah, we've been hearing for a long time about how much of a game changer a federal clean energy standard could be. So it'll be interesting to see if that works its way through. And and like you said, the, the long-term effect in, in regions of the country where there's not so abundant a supply of renewables. When we opened this podcast, I asked you about your background in renewables and how long you've been doing it. And so I want to ask you, in your years in the industry, what have you seen change the most uh, and maybe what hasn't changed? Well, I think what's changed is uh, renewable technologies have become the most predominant new generation source planned in the United States. Uh, when I started in the industry, it was a niche. Um, in my first year at GE Energy, I think we sold roughly uh, 45 wind turbines, as I recall, right in that transition period. And of course, they'll probably sell thousands this year. So the scale of the, and those turbines are about five times larger than the ones we worked at then too, potentially. So we've seen a massive increase in scale. And with that, um, a massive increase in investment in the industry. Also, there's more capital available in the industry than I've seen in my whole career as well, in terms of um, investors that are excited about uh, fueling the energy transition by investing in companies like mine and, and projects. So, so that's very exciting. What hasn't changed is when it gets down to it, like I mentioned before, it's, it's a people business. No project ever went forward without a landowner supporting it. We need to make sure we don't get ahead of ourselves. Just we have to make sure that we bring these communities along with us and they buy into this so they can be part of the energy transition and they see how it benefits them and their children and future generations. And I think as we install more renewable energy around the U.S., I think that's becoming clearer and clearer in a lot of communities, but that's a process that we haven't completed. There's a lot left to do there. Okay, great. Michael, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much, Sean. Now it's time for the pod brief segment of the show. And as I mentioned at the top of this episode, I want to talk for a few moments about some reports that have been released recently. First, the U.S. Department of Energy made some big headlines with the release of its Solar Futures Study. I'm including a link to the study in today's show notes so you can read it for yourself, but the upshot is that the Biden administration is setting some lofty goals for the solar industry. The study suggests solar could provide 40%, that's right, 40% of the energy supply in the U.S. by 2035. As with other goals set by the administration, this one relies on a whole lot of things going right. For an expert analysis of the Solar Futures Study, check out the research note from Liam that I'm also including in the show notes. The team at Liam makes it clear that the U.S. is already behind on meeting Biden's goal for solar. However, that Liam note also outlines the buttons the administration can push to get things back on track. Also in the news is the 2021 edition of the Global Offshore Wind Report from GWEC, the Global Wind Energy Council. This report provides a global snapshot of how the wind industry has grown in the last 12 months and China looms large. But what's equally noticeable is that North America does not. I know there are projects on the way in the waters off the U.S., but this report makes clear how offshore wind might linger as a missed opportunity in the U.S. for years to come. The U.S. has the workforce, but much of that workforce has been hamstrung by political and regulatory hurdles. Take, for example, the Jones Act. Should offshore wind installation workers in the U.S. really be forced to sit idle while they await the construction of more installation vessels that are Jones Act compliant? Or should the administration issue a moratorium on Jones Act enforcement that will allow those offshore workers to get to work while the shipyard workers are busy building more vessels? 
If Team Biden is really all about a, quote, whole of government approach, it's time to tear down policy hurdles and get everyone to work putting more turbines in the water. That's it for today's show. Before we go, I'd like to say one more ginormous thank you to the exclusive sponsor of this episode, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And be sure to follow us on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at RenewablesPod. And if you'd like a daily dose of renewable news delivered to your inbox, head to SmartBrief.com and sign up for the Renewable Energy Smart Brief. The Renewable Energy Smart Pod is a production of SmartBrief, a future company.